Misunderstandings are, um, are part of everyday life. Just part and parcel of living in this world. And they can be funny. So, some of you mentioned this before, we'll have a look on the screen. You can see this, um, this road sign. It's very clearly, it says, no entry for heavy goods vehicles, residential site only. Fairly flawless road sign at first glance. It's from Swansea, 2008. Local authorities there putting it up. It's an issue if you're a Welsh speaker, um, because it actually says, there is no one in the office at the moment. Please send any work to be translated. Because that's the problem with out-of-office auto-replies and not speaking the language. It means that signs are made for lorry drivers. Misunderstandings are part of everyday life, and most of the time they're fine. They can be a bit annoying. You can imagine uh, the residents in this suburb weren't particularly pleased. You can imagine uh, Welsh-speaking heavy vehicle drivers having to reverse out of little streets. Some misunderstandings are fun. Some are annoying. Some are more important. I wonder whether misunderstandings about the Christian faith and about Jesus are particularly important. The claim of Paul we've had over the last few weeks is that God has a plan. God has a plan for his world, and it is really, really good news. But but what about if we've misunderstood it? What about if we've missed the point? What about if we've rejected it on the basis of a misunderstanding? You see, many people look into the Christian faith and they say, I'm not interested, thank you very much. But it turns out they've never quite grasped, actually, what it's all about. So what I hope we'll do as we continue through Ephesians, our our series, we're working through this letter from Paul to this church in Ephesus. We're in chapter 2 today. I think we'll see three very common misconceptions that people have about the Christian faith. And I think we'll see how Paul deals with them very clearly and very helpfully for us. Maybe you've come across these three before. The first one is that following Jesus is just a crutch for the weak. Just people who struggle with life. So they need something to give them a bit of a booster to keep them going. Second one, following Jesus is about being good. It's just about trying to earn a relationship with the God who made you. And the third one, following Jesus is just for one kind of person, isn't it? Churches are all the same. It's just for one sort of person. First one, then, it's just a crutch for the weak. And Paul says, do you know you're not weak? You are dead. So for many, the story goes, Christians, they're people, they just can't quite get through life themselves. Christian faith, it's a whistling in the dark. We we all know it's not really true. We're just going to pretend it's real. We're going to try and forget our fears and say, whistle to ourselves in the dark. Some people, they have an invisible friend. Some people have Jesus. And yet what Paul says as he writes to this church in Ephesus is that is not right at all. Now Christians are not needy, needing some sort of crutch. It's not as if they're in hospital waiting for a bit of help. He says Christians are in the morgue. They are dead. It's not good news at all and he doesn't pull any punches. Have a look with me at verses 1 to 3. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. 
the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. He says, you are dead. Dead in transgressions and sins. Now when he says that, he doesn't mean that they are actually dead, of course. It's more of a spiritual death. So just flick over the page with me. Have a look at 4 verse 18. This might help you get your mind around it. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So the being dead back in chapter 2 verse 1 and also in verse 5 is not physical death. It's not heart stopping beating. No, it's no life with God. Not knowing the God of life. Because when we walk out on the God of life, well, so comes sin and death. He says we're dead. It doesn't stop there, verse 2. We are enslaved as well. You are slaves that follow. You follow the, the ways of this world. And more than that, you follow the devil. I think that's what he means by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It's not good news. I know it's old now, but it's a little bit like the film The Matrix. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's, it's a film in which the whole world, unbeknown to them, have been sucked into a wrong view of reality. They're all going the wrong way. And yet they're completely oblivious to it. They're completely blind. Well, and so Paul says here, there's a sense in which the world is blind. It's going the wrong way. People are enslaved to this world, to the devil, Rebelling against the God who made it all, they are blind, but they don't know it. And because of that, Paul says, we are dead. Because God is so good, because he is so just, because he is so pure, because he is so holy, well, so his just anger and his wrath, verse 3, are upon us. Christianity is not a crutch. It's a death certificate. Stories told of a man who was um, the first Secretary General of the United Nations, a man called uh, Dag Hammarskjöld. Forgive me for my pronunciation. Um, he was described by others as a great, good, and lovable man. But he looked into his own heart and he said this. Let me read it. He said, In there he saw that dark counter centre of evil in our nature so that we make even our service of others the foundations of our own life. We preserve self-esteem, he said. He's talking of the way in which we do good stuff, we're nice to people, we're generous, we're kind, but we, we just do it for them, to be seen by them, to be praised by them, to impress them, hoping they're watching, just to feel good about ourselves. Slightly lower brow, that episode of Friends where Phoebe challenges Joey, I think, to do a a real selfless good deed. Do you remember that one? And he can't do it, because the kind things he does make him feel pride, and he feels good about himself, and he realises it's not selfless. It's for himself, and it's um, for his own ego. Theologians say we've turned in on ourselves. We serve ourselves. And Paul says, you are dead in transgressions and sins, therefore. 
But then there's verse 4. And verse 4 is beautiful. Maybe 1 to 3 really resonates with you and you feel something of that sin. You feel something of that death and that slavery that Paul talks of. But the passage doesn't stop at verse 3. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Dead people can be brought back to life. Why, verse 5, because of his great love for us. Why, to show the incomparable riches of his grace to a watching world. How? Well, because of Jesus. Because he has made us alive with Christ. We are in him, we said in previous weeks. And to be in Christ, Paul says, means that all that he has done is yours. All that he has won is for you. As you trust in Christ, you are included into his work on the cross. So his death is your death. The forgiveness he won, it is for you. The blessings he achieved, they are all yours. He has ascended and he is risen and victorious. And Paul says, so are you. Because you're in Christ. And we say, but not me. Not me, because you don't know the stuff that I've been into. The stuff that I've got caught up in. But look at who died in your place. Look at how precious his blood is. You were dead, but in him is life. I'd love to urge you, if you're somebody who hasn't trusted Christ for yourself, if you are not in him, then please trust him today. Look at the language that Paul uses. Because God is rich in mercy, because of his great love, because of his grace, so throw yourself on him. Have faith in him. Trust him today. Is following Jesus just about a crutch for the weak? It's far, far worse than that. He says you're dead. And he offers you life. Second one. It's just about being good to make God happy with you. Something as Christians we easily perpetuate, isn't it? Because our hearts seem to be wired into this kind of works mentality. God loves me more today because I've done this today. I've read my Bible. I've told a colleague about church. I've I prayed a bit. So God loves me more particularly today. Or maybe it's the other way around. When we don't get the job or the guy or the girl or the money or whatever it might be, something we care about and we immediately think, I'm not up to scratch, am I? Something's gone wrong. God has removed his kindness from me for some reason. Maybe I should give more. Maybe I should pray more. Maybe I should work harder. Maybe I should do more. Then he'll give me what I want. And suddenly we see our hearts veer towards works. 
Is it something you earn? No. No, it's all about grace. So it's, it's, it's as if he's gone down to the John Radcliffe Hospital. It's down the road, and he's pulled out the cardiac arrest paddle thingies. There's somebody dead in front of him, and, and God comes and puts them on your spiritual chest, and you're brought back to life again. You're forgiven. You're made new. Imagine the doctor, they're looking at the patient. I'm not sure, actually. Do you know what he thought last week? Do, do you know what he said about his colleague? Do you know the stuff that he did when nobody was watching? I'm going to bring him back to life. He hasn't done enough to earn this. As if we could. God's grace is for those who never deserve it. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. God's grace is seen at the cross where where his anger and his wrath fall on Jesus instead of us. He is condemned in our place. We don't deserve it. We can never deserve it. Because it looked pretty hopeless, end of verse 3. Dead people aren't great at helping themselves. There's not a lot they can do. But there is something God can do. And so you see at verse 5, the grace word, it is by grace you have been saved. Verse 7 the incomparable riches of his grace. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved. We'll see more in a bit, but in a mixed town like Ephesus, in a mixed church like the Ephesian Ephesian church, in many senses, both Jewish people and Gentile folk wouldn't get grace. Not many, but most of the Jews had slipped into a mentality that said, well, if I do this sort of stuff, then God will be happy. Many of the Jews, it seems, what they knew of mercy and grace had been swamped by rules and regulations and the law. And for the Gentiles, do you remember the the ideas of power and magic and the occult going on in Ephesus? Their minds filled with, well, if I perform these things, then the powers might give me this, then the gods might bless me with this. But grace is not God saying, do this or do that or do the other. I think it's done for you. It's done for you and Jesus dying on the cross in the place of his people. So grace is what changes Christians. Grace ought to be our foundation as a community. They're transformed. We are transformed. And there's a purpose as well. We've gone, do you see, from verse 2, from those who follow the world, to now, verses 9 to 10, those who have a job to do. We've been saved not by works, verse 9, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So our separation from God is not solved by trying harder or by working more or doing more stuff. It's it's because of his grace. We can't work ourselves out of death, but work has a part to play, doesn't it? We are not saved by works. We are God's work to do his works. We are not saved by works. We are God's work to do his works. And so Christians should live in a certain kind of way. 
Not because we're trying to earn some sort of relationship. Not to make God pleased with us, but because he already has been. Because we're already in him. Because we've been brought back to life. Because he's shown us grace. That's why Christians live as they do. It's a shame, but churches are often the kind of place we don't find grace. We don't treat each other well. Stories told of a young woman in South America. She'd always wanted to leave home. She'd always wanted to head to the city. She lived in a kind of rural house. She wanted to head into the city where the life was. And her mother urged her not to go. She knew that in the big city she would likely be ending up in, in poverty, in prostitution. But the daughter wouldn't listen, and so eventually the mum wakes up one morning and the daughter is gone. There is no note, there is no forwarding address, there's no way of getting in contact. She was just gone. And for months her mum waited and waited and saves up money and eventually has enough money to get a bus ticket to the city and a bit left over for some photocopying. So she makes pictures of her daughter. and She writes on the back and then goes from cheap hotel to cheap hotel to cheap hotel, sticking them on the notice board. Hundreds and hundreds across the city. Money runs out, she goes home. Months passed, no news. And one day in a cheap hotel, which was a brothel during the day, a young woman trudges wearily down the stairs and she sees a picture of herself on the notice board. She goes over, she turns it over. And on the back it says, wherever you are, whatever you've done, come home. That is God's grace. It's driven by love. It comes and gets us. It doesn't wait for us to make the first move. It's not motivated by us at all. We can't earn it. It's entirely from him. It's a gift. The danger in Ephesians 2 is that we leave it there. That's often the way it's done when we're sort of preaching through books. I've stopped at verse 10 before and done 11 onwards next week. But, you know, that easily slides into our individualistic mindset where it's just about me and God. But actually, verse 1, you is plural, as are the others, as are the us's, as are the we's, this is written to a church, to a Christian people together. And when we think it's about an individualistic thing, it's just me and God and you know, buddies together, when we forget God's plan involves everyone. We're a people. Sin isn't just, just a vertical issue between us and God, it's a horizontal issue between us and us. Which is why it's so helpful to look at 11 to 22 as well today. Because it's our third common misconception, and that is following Jesus is just for a particular type of person. Paul says it's for everyone. So you switch on the news and it's painful because ours is a world of war, whether it's the, the international level or the national level or at a community level or an individual level, or even internally, as people are torn apart inside. Ours is a world of war, and you, you read these verses... And notice the word peace. These are verses about world peace. 
It's not just the supermodel at the pageant who longs for world peace. Isn't it something that we long for too? Where war is finished. So verse 14, Jesus is our peace. We have peace with God now, our sin is dealt with. And because we have peace with God through Jesus, well, verse 15, he has made peace. Verse 17, he came to preach peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. To those who were near, I take it, Jewish background believers. Those who had been waiting for the promised Davidic king. Those who were far away, the Gentiles. Who didn't seem to be a part of God's plan. And you get a glimpse, don't you, of something, almost of the name-calling going on between them. Verse 11, the, the lack of peace there. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Something's gone wrong because the law was meant to show the world what God was like. We were meant to be light in a dark world. They were not to murder because God gives life. They weren't to commit adultery because God is faithful. They weren't to steal because they have a generous God who gives them all they need. This law that was good has been twisted to be much more about who's in and who's out excluding people, dividing people. And so Paul says, verse 13 to 14, But now in Christ Jesus you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. This, the law that divided humanity down the middle has been done away with by Jesus. Remember we said in, in the first week, that the local church is, is a bit like a sort of grainy picture in a holiday brochure. It, it's just a glimpse of what's to come, just a taster. It's imperfect, it's out of focus, looks a bit rubbish, but it's a glimpse of what's to come. Divided humanity now united around the cross, around Jesus. 1 verse 10 was where it was all going, under his headship, and yet 3 verse 10 is what we enjoy now in the church. Where else would you get quite such a bunch of different people together in the same room, the same church family, loving each other, caring for each other? The two has been made one. The dividing wall of hostility has been removed. And so verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near. The two have been made one. The division has gone. And it all sounds rather grand, rather theoretical. And you look around you and you see real people bruised people with messed up lives and histories and tempers and mistakes and arguments and sulks and hassles and stresses and brokenness. But in all our weakness 
and our unfinished graininess, in all the reality of life, we are the temple. We are God's household. And this, this diversity thing, I hope you see, means that Jesus is not just for one kind of person. Very striking. The dividing wall of hostility has been removed. The two have been made one. So I take it that local churches ought to have a breadth about them. I think that's really important. That shows the world something of the glory of God. Something of him being at work, removing divisions, uniting enemies. Too often, it seems to me, we just target groups of one kind of person. Or we fill our churches full of one kind of person. But we're to be a diverse people. Because ours is a big God with a big plan. And so it's that time of year in Oxford where a whole bunch of you will be church shopping. Because that's what you do. And that's because it's the autumn. I'd love to encourage you, wherever you settle in a church, please, please, please look somewhere that is diverse. Particularly if you're a student, it would be such a shame for you to finish your year or three years or four years in Oxford and only know students, just to be an extension of the CU on a Sunday. It doesn't seem to me that's very helpful when you read Ephesians 2. Wherever you end up, go somewhere where you can meet all kinds of people and be a part of a body, a real body, diverse body. I think this matters. I'm quite passionate about this. It matters because if we don't do that, then people looking in on our churches think, well, Jesus is just for that kind of person, that kind of background, that kind of education, that kind of skin colour whatever it might be. And we seem to be saying to the world that God's plan is just for people like us and not necessarily people like you. And it matters too because I know my heart and I know that I'm sinful and I know it would be much easier to be in a church with people just like me because it's just much easier. Because people who are different from me, they challenge me and they refine me and they make me feel uncomfortable. They make me have to deal with my sin and my prejudice. They cause me to question whether I really love my brother and sister in Christ or whether it's just people quite like me, actually. Some of you will know my background. Um, I grew up in Oxford, went to Birmingham and sort of got stuck there and ended up church planting. Um, And we started this church in Birmingham, and we were all pretty similar. And it was good, and it was a happy and settled time. And then, in his kindness, the Lord brought along about 15 people um, to church who were very different from us. Different ages, different preferences, different backgrounds, different songs that they knew, different levels of education, different vocabulary, different personalities. And was it easier when they joined us? Of course not. Were we blessed through it? Of course we were. 
Because suddenly we were diverse. Suddenly we had to be challenged to really love people, not like us. See whether we really believe the gospel. Suddenly we grew up as a church, almost overnight. And if we're just surrounded by people like us, then I think we're taking the easy option and we're comfortable and we're missing out on what church is about. I have to say, it's one of the reasons I love Maudlin Rose. We've got a way to go, but I love having the kids in at the start. That kind of chaos. It's great because it makes me think, do I really love these children and their families? Or do I want things just the way that I want them? I love having the toffs here who bring experience and wisdom, who have been in this area for so many years and for whom we have so much to learn. So the toffs are the over 55s if you're visiting us. I love the slowly but surely increasing breadth in terms of diversity, whether that be skin colour or background or jobs or language or whatever it might be. I love the increasing heart that the church has to reach different groups of people in this area and Oxford and beyond. Because it shows that we're beginning to get what church is about. The diversity, but unity. The dividing wall of hostility removed. If I'm honest, I've got every sympathy with the person that says, well, Jesus is just for one kind of person. Because often that is the way we do our churches. We segregate ourselves in different groups. Because it's much easier to build churches like that. But I think we're missing something of the glory of God. Jesus came to break down dividing walls of hostility. So following him is for everyone. Is it a crutch for the weak? No, it's worse than that. It's worse than that. We are dead. We are dead, but brought to life in Christ. Is it about being good? No, no, it's only about grace, only ever about grace. You can never earn it. You are never good enough. Is it for a particular kind of person? No, it's for everyone. Everyone. 